Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles tonight to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where we continue, and we hopefully, hopefully, finish out the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Lord, we're a unique gathering. We're a textual community. We have gathered with a common belief that you have spoken and everything that you want to say to us has been given by the principles that we discover in your word from Genesis to Revelation. It is our privilege to mine to dig deep and to discover the riches and make application to our lives. Many truths that we will uncover, Lord, tonight we have read before. They are familiar to us. It is ground that we know. We've covered it before. But we need reminders of this, that we might not only be hearers but doers of your word, that we might grow. That's what we want. We want growth. We don't want to stay the same. We want maturity. And we know that's what you want. So, Lord, we know we're praying according to your will. Based on that, we pray that even though the teacher is limited, the human teacher is limited tonight, we pray that the Holy Spirit, the divine teacher, would supersede and do a work in every single life that is gathered. This is... This is your family. These are your kids. We always see this as gathering together in a giant living room and just simply going over the scriptures that you have given and seeing how they fit with us. We invite you, Lord, to be our intimate friend and instructor in Jesus' name. Amen. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels are really a fourfold portrait of the same person. It's the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ from four different perspectives. Look at the four Gospels as a stringed quartet whose instruments are perfectly, beautifully tuned and they make harmonious music all together. Each instrument playing off the other instruments. Kept in harmony by a common conductor, making it all work. And we behold the beauty of each, but it's the beauty of the whole where the real glory is. Or, look at the four Gospels sort of like four cameras on a Hollywood set all controlled by a director. And so you've got Matthew, he's got his angle. Mark, he's from a different angle. Luke and John, all of them assume a different emphasis. One will pan the crowds and get the reactions. Another camera will focus closely in on what is being said by the main character. Another will focus on rapid segues, transitions that take place. So you have Matthew. Matthew was written to the Jews to show that Jesus fulfilled all of the promises of the Messiah, the coming King that the Old Testament wrote about. And so Matthew's oft-repeated word is the word fulfilled. He tells us this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet. That's Matthew. That's his camera angle. Mark's a bit different. Mark didn't write for the Jews. Mark wrote for the Romans, it would seem. And his view of Christ is that of the perfect servant, the hardworking servant. And his favorite phrase or word is the word immediately. It's amazing how many times you read that word in just the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And immediately Jesus did this. And immediately they went there. And immediately this happened. Because he is portraying in rapid sequence 
what a servant does in fulfilling his master's orders. Luke has a whole different vantage point. He's writing for the Greeks. The Greeks were all about the perfect man, the ideal man. So Luke, the doctor, portrays Jesus and says, look, here is your perfect man. Here's your ideal man. And his favorite phrase is, the son of man. Then there's John, totally different than the previous three synoptic gospels, we call them. John writes for the whole world. The whole world, and his word is the word believe. 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 He says that over and over again, about a hundred times in his book. So the emphasis of Matthew, the book we're currently studying, is on what Jesus said. That's why Matthew focuses his camera angle on the speeches, the discourses of the Messiah. Mark, his emphasis is on what Jesus did. And like a rapidly moving movie script, we follow him from place to place as he does good and teaches but heals and works like an ambitious servant. Luke tells us how Jesus felt. The good doctor, Dr. Luke, who gave us that gospel and the book of Acts, gives more of the emotion of the Messiah than any other book. And John, he helps us understand not what Jesus said, not what he did, not what he felt, but who he was. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he writes in John chapter 20. So four different camera angles, and the one we have been looking at is that of Matthew. And Matthew's whole thing is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one the Old Testament has predicted over and over again, the one who is at the center of God's plan of salvation for the whole world, and this is his kingdom. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, these are the ethics, these are the standards These are the values of kingdom living under King Jesus, the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all of those promises. We finish chapter 6. Chapter 7, verse 1 is before us. Jesus continues. You notice if you have a red-letter Bible, again, it's all red-letter. Jesus is giving one long dialogue, one long monologue. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Some people have read those verses. And based upon, especially verse 1, have said, Christians are to make no evaluations whatsoever. They're not to make an evaluative statement. They're not to be critical of how things are done or what is being said or paying too careful attention to doctrine. Not too critical. And would even disparage those who are in discernment ministries. Because Jesus, after all, said, Judge not that you be not judged. Therefore, the Christian is to make no critical evaluation of anyone else. Now, if that is what verse 1 means, we have a big problem. We have a problem, for example, with Elijah the prophet, who spoke forcefully against King Ahab, the king of Israel, and the false prophets of Baal. We have a problem with Paul the Apostle who spoke against the Judaizers who infiltrated the church and said that you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Boy, did Paul come against them. And we have a huge problem with Jesus because Jesus tells us, commands us to make evaluative, critical judgments. For example, in John chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not judge according to outward appearance, but judge you a righteous judgment. He commands us to do it.
In Galatians chapter 6, if anyone is overtaken with any fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. But way before that, that beautiful restorative word that he gives, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, Even though we, or an angel from heaven, come and preaches to you a gospel that is different than the one that you have received, let him be accursed, eternally condemned. Boy! Is he being judgmental? So here's Jesus saying, judge not that you be not judged, but does he mean make no evaluation, no critical evaluation whatsoever, never use discernment? Because if Jesus meant that, go down to verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Well, you're going to have to make some sort of evaluation to understand who is a dog and who is a swine versus those who are not. Correct? It's the same context. Or skip down a few more verses down to verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You can't beware of them. You can't be on the lookout for them if you are not prepared to make some sort of critical evaluation. So then what does Jesus mean when he says, Don't judge. He simply means, and the word is krino in Greek. Krino means a harsh, self-righteous, censorious judgment. A hypercritical evaluation that pretends to know the motive of a person when in reality you don't have all the facts. Let me give you an example. If I were to see somebody at a restaurant and say, What is that person doing here? What is that family doing at this restaurant? I know what they make. They can't afford this thing. No wonder they're in poverty. They go out to places like this. Now, I don't have all the facts. And I've just made an evaluation based upon not having all the information and judging the motivation. It's a harsh, censorious, and self-righteous evaluation. Now, they could be in that restaurant because somebody graciously gave them a gift certificate. They're cashing it in that night. The Lord is blessing them. If I say, yeah, that person gets up late every morning, man, I tell you, what a bum. Well, maybe that person is up late the night before working on some project, trying to get through school or working hard for the family, maybe a second or third job. So when Jesus says, don't judge, that's the kind of judgment he is talking about, that harsh, self-righteous judgment, not knowing all of the facts. There's, there's three reasons we're not to judge. Number one, you're not the final judge. God is. God knows everything. See, God reserves the right to be God. Don't try to be Him yourself. If you don't know something, don't make an evaluation about it. It is amazing to me how many people spout opinions after not researching things, but just hearing the opinions of other people, thinking it must be the right opinion. That's tragic. It happens all the time. I see it even in newspapers and magazines. I see a journalism that is not a journalism of integrity. They just simply take what another journalist has written and instead of doing all the hard research and asking all of the fundamental questions, they just sort of reprint it. They state it in their own words. It's just sort of a sloppy plagiarism and it gets them in trouble sometimes. So Jesus then continues in verse 2. And here's the second reason. You're not to judge. Because judgment is a boomerang. With what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You've heard the old saying that if you live in a glass house, you shouldn't be throwing stones. And judgment has a way of boomeranging, creating a gallows that you will hang on one day. You remember the story in Esther chapter 7 of Haman who built a gallows to hang righteous Mordecai the Jew on and things turned around against him and he was hung on the very gallows that he made. 
Um, most of you remember that. Fewer of you will remember the next example. Uh, there was a king, a Canaanite king named Adonai Bezek. He comes to us in Judges chapter 1. Now, Adonai Bezek was captured by the Israelites, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. It's an odd passage. You go, why is that in the Bible? Ever find that in a verse? Why'd they write that? What's the deal with the thumbs and the toes? The idea of cutting off one's thumbs is to take away the dexterity, the manipulative dexterity in the hands. You lose it. You lose the ability to fight, to wield a sword. Taking off the big toe, you lose balance. Well, after they do that to him, Adonai Bezek says, there are 70 kings of which I have cut off their big toes and their thumbs who were beggars under my table, and now the Lord has repaid me. It seemed that he made a practice of doing that with other kings that he had conquered, and now it happened to him. He judged by a measure, and he was judged with that measure. All right. Some of the ancient Jewish rabbis used to say that God has two measures whenever he judges. The, the, the measure of justice and the measure of mercy. Which measure would you like on you? If God is judging you, which measure do you want God to use? You want mercy, right? Which, judge, which measure do you usually grab when you judge other people? Mercy or justice? Usually justice. Where's the cop when you need him? That guy just did 90 miles an hour. When you're in a hurry, you don't seem to mind that you got away with it. Verse 3. Here's the third reason why you shouldn't judge, because it's hypocrisy. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? You see a splinter. Excuse me, brother. I see a splinter in your eye. Oh, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry to hit you with the pine tree that's hanging out of my eye. That's the idea. (laughs) Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. As I was going over this, something occurred to me. The speck, the splinter, and the plank, the pine tree, is essentially the same substance. One is the other. One is much smaller, the other is much bigger. The reason I can see little splinters in your eyes is because I'm familiar with the substance. I've got a huge piece of it in mine. We are good, typically, at spotting sins in other people because we're familiar with them in our own lives. And we become, unfortunately, very judgmental over the sin that lurks in us. David committed adultery. He took the only wife of Uriah the Hittite, a faithful soldier in David's army, and had an adulterous affair. Her name was Bathsheba. You know the story. David had many wives. He was very wealthy. He could have any one of his wives that he wanted at any time. But he took Uriah the Hittite's wife, committed adultery with her. And so Nathan the prophet paid him a visit one day and said, David, I've got a little problem I need your help on. There were two men living in the same town. One was a rich dude, one was a poor guy. The rich guy had many herds and many flocks. The poor man had nothing, just one single ewe lamb, a female lamb, a little lamb. It's all that he had. It was his pet. He cuddled with it every night on his chest. He, he, he fed scraps from the table. It was like a daughter to him, David. This rich guy had a friend coming from out of town and The rich guy said, well, i got to make him a meal. So instead of going to one of the the sheep in the many flocks that he had, he stole the one small little pet from the poor man and killed it, and they ate it for supper. 
David said, That man shall surely die. Nathan said, Really? Because you are that man. You had many wives. God has blessed you with so much. And you stole the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And what you said about that man that he should die is what you have done. Now, here's what's interesting. Why did David say kill him? That wasn't the law. The law of Moses didn't say kill him. The law of Moses said if somebody steals somebody's sheep, you got to restore it fourfold, four times, pay him back. Because David was so familiar with the sin of the man in the parable because it was his own sin. Same substance. Speck, plank. I see the speck. It's because I have the plank. There was a family that had an elderly grandpa. He was a bit cranky, and he came to visit the family one Sunday afternoon, and he was taking a nap after supper. He was cranky through the whole supper. I don't like this. I don't like that. He was just one of those kind of guys, cranky old man. He's taking a nap in one of the back bedrooms. One of the grandsons thought, let's play a trick on Grandpa. So they took some Lindberger cheese. You know what that is, right? You know how stinky that is? And rubbed it on Grandpa's mustache. And just waited. The old codger woke up some time later. You could hear him in the back bedroom. This room stinks! Opened the door, started walking through the house, smelling, goes, Man, this whole house stinks. Walked outside, smelled, he goes, The whole world stinks. It's because he's carrying around the stink right under his nose. Here's David going, That guy stinks. He can smell his own smell. And so often, when we pass judgment, we are critical in the same areas that we ourselves have. So what do we do? What is the right approach? Not to be censorious, not to be hypocritical, not to be smug and self-righteous, but to be helpful. Here's the right approach. Be helpful to your brother. Look at verse 5. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. That's what you do. You first take that out. And then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you know that when you confess your sin to God and you admit it before the Lord, you're actually helping in the process of restoring other people who have similar situations. That's the first step in helping them. As you confess your own sin before God, that helps to restore rather than to destroy other people around you. So that's the first step. First, remove the plank from your eye. In Psalm 51, David wrote that beautiful psalm about how sorry he was that he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and done what he had done against Uriah the Hittite. And you remember that little portion toward the middle of the psalm where David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Then... Listen up. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Then others will be converted to you. Once I make confession of my sin and humble myself, that's the first step in the restoration process. I remove the plank out of my eye. Second step, be discerning. Be helpful to your brother Be discerning of your neighbor. Verse 6. It seems like it's out of place, but it's part and parcel of the same speech. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn and tear you in pieces. We have a balance in verse 6 to what has been stated in the first five verses. Now, when you read about dog here... Don't think of a pet dog. In those days, most people didn't have pet dogs. Dogs were scavengers. They ran around the city. They carried disease. Dogs and pigs were considered unholy. Um, You'd never find a Jewish home where there was a pet pig. I say that tongue-in-cheek because 
it's become sort of fashionable in the last couple decades to have those little Vietnamese potbelly pigs. Have you seen them? They're little pets. I was uh, at Franklin Graham's home years ago, and he had a pig running inside of his house. And he goes, look at my pig. It's a pet. I really didn't know what to say. I'm just kind of looking at this. as okay, I'm in the South. Just kind of checking it out. Huh. And Jane said, isn't he cute? I said, it's a pig. You don't give a pearl necklace to a pig. You don't give what is holy to the dogs. Now, the context isn't modern America, but ancient Israel. Dogs and pigs were considered unholy, unkosher, unclean. You'd never think about taking the meat offered in temporal sacrifices and letting the dogs take it away and trample it and eat it and tear it. Oftentimes, people were known as dogs or pigs. They're used that way a couple of times even in the Scripture to refer to a person who is so filthy as to trample the truth of God underfoot and to pay no attention to it. So there is a balance. Jesus says, don't judge censoriously, self-righteously, hypocritically in a way that impugns the motive of another person. At the same time, you need discernment. Be discerning. Be loving. Be forgiving. But be discerning. Was Jesus ever that way? Many times. On one occasion, the Pharisees said, Boy, Jesus, you better get out of here because Herod's been looking for you. He wants to kill you. Jesus said, Go tell that fox that I must do the works today and then the third, you know, all the way up to the third day. I've got to complete the works. Go tell that fox. Now, a fox is a sly, cunning beast, it's not a compliment. He called Herod by what was his true nature, that of a beast, a sly, cunning, self-serving beast. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs, you brood of slimy snakes. Wait, 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 wait. Where does that fit in and judge not that you be not judged? Fits perfectly. Jesus said, judge a righteous judgment. It was a righteous judgment. He was right on the mark. So the the balance, be loving, be forgiving, but by all means, be discerning. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds, and he who, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now there's a promise there. You will find, it will be opened, but notice that the promise is attached to a command. It's put in the, it's put in the present active imperative. Ask. It's a command. The way it's written is, I command you, ask. Now, to me, that's fascinating. Why on earth would God ever have to command you to pray? Just think about that for a minute. Why would God ever have to command you to pray? Well, perhaps because He knows that we don't. Perhaps it's because He knows that either by our own pride, by our resistance to do it, Or maybe we might say, I'm not worthy, or I'm in such despair, or we just forget about it. Because he knows human nature, he has to every now and then give us a commandment to do it. Do it. Ask me for something. Can you imagine a parent saying, son, come here. I want you to ask me for something right now for Christmas. (laughs) All right. Cool. Because whatever you ask, son, I'll give it to you. Oh, awesome. Now that's a commandment. You can't go to bed till you do that. Okay. Yet we find that same command in other places in the Bible. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Call to me, God said. That's a command in Hebrew. And I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. So the command 
The promise is attached to the command. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What this shows me, and I say this, these verses, this command to pray, along with all of the other verses that Jesus talks about praying in, What this shows me is the heart of God in wanting to give his sons and daughters good things. That's his heart. A kid, a child, knows that the nature and temperament of that child's father and mother will determine how much or how little that child will ask a father or mother. If you have a very harsh, austere dad who doesn't want to be bothered and makes that known and is very stingy about what he gives or a mom about what she gives, that child is going to be very hesitant to ask for anything. After a period of time, that kid's going to learn, don't ask mom for anything. But if the father is very generous and kind loves to give and loves to see that child with a smile on his face. The child's going to ask a lot. The way we pray is determined by our view of God. Do we think God is harsh? Do we think God is holding back? He's not generous, that he's vengeful and hurtful? That's how the Greeks viewed their gods. Even among many of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago, God was very aloof, very distant, In the temple, there were courts. There was a wall that said, death to any non-Jew, Gentile, past this point. But when Jesus died on the cross, one of my favorite things that happened in the crucifixion, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God was saying, I don't want this separation any longer. Because of what my son has done, man, you guys can come close and have intimate fellowship with me. I love that. But I was so discouraged when I found out that the Jews sewed the veil back up. Now, I think we do the same thing. And there's a number of ways we do it. God is saying, I want intimacy. Come close. Ask. Seek. Knock. And we put up barriers. I was brought up with the belief that God can't be bothered by a mere mortal. You can't come directly to God. You can't come directly to Jesus. You can come to His mother. Because what what son would refuse a mother if the mother asks? So I was taught growing up, don't talk to Jesus. Talk to Mary or talk to these saints. And they'll sort of, you know, get in line and get God on a good day. That's the hierarchy. That's the celestial hierarchical rule. And then I read the Bible. And I read the the book of Hebrews. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of God, that we might receive grace to help in time of need, or in the nick of time, some translations render it. And that just blew away everything I'd been taught growing up. God wants a relationship. He wants me to ask. He wants me to come. He wants to bless. He wants to give. Verse 9 is the illustration of that. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread? Will he give him a stone? Imagine how ludicrous. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is simply stating God's love for his children via answered prayer. And the illustration is a child asking for a favor from his dad. In verse 9, Dad, can I have a piece of bread? Sir, son. Has a little quirky smile on his face and slips a stone in there that looks just like a piece of bread. Imagine if family went to McDonald's. The dad ordered a Big Mac and took out the patty and put in a little stone. Said, here, son. Love you. How cruel. That would break the son's 
teeth and his heart at the same time. <laughs> or can you imagine, Dad, I, I, I'd love a fish sandwich. Sure, here you go. Dad, what's that rattle doing in my sandwich? Oh, it's attached to a snake. Why is that there? Again, it's so ludicrous. Here is Jesus using the most intimate, selfless human relationship, which is parents who care for and love their children. It's the most basic selfless relationship. And he said, okay, if that happens on an earthly level, how much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? Much more. Verse 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, also do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We have a question that was texted in. We love to throw these up on the screen. This is what you have asked. The question is, how can you ask for something and yet stay humble and unselfish? To me, that's simple. I'm asking for something. I'm not demanding it. I'm not commanding it. I'm I'm filtering it through the Lord's will. Lord, if this is your will, you know what I need. This is what I want. I believe this is what I need. But I'm asking nonetheless. And, And Lord, you may just want to lavish something I don't need. You didn't promise me that, but you may want to do it. So I'm just simply asking you for it. God has the right to say no. I always know that. I never walk away saying, God never answered my prayers. I walk away saying, God answered my prayer. He said, no, that's an answer. I didn't like his answer. It's not the answer I was hoping for, but he answered it nonetheless. So I don't see that as prideful. I ask, I pray in Jesus' name, and then I leave it to him and I submit my will for his acknowledgement. So in verse 12, therefore... Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12, you have the the summary statement. The bottom line summation of kingdom of God ethics, of how we, God's kids, are to treat other people. This is the Mount Everest. If, If ever there was... If if the Sermon on the Mount is climaxing all the way through, coming up to a pinnacle, this is the pinnacle. This is the most famous thing Jesus ever said. I have found this statement, even in secular places like greeting cards and plaques and many, many places like that, the golden rule. Unfortunately, however, I find it quoted without the first word of the sentence. Now you'll notice the first word of the sentence is, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, just as God is so kind and so loving and wants to answer the prayer of His children who depend upon Him because He set the example and He is the model, therefore... Model your life after that. God does it for you. Do it for other people. Now this golden rule is what sets Christianity apart, one thing that sets Christianity apart, from every other philosophy and every other religious system. There is no system of belief or religion that has anything like this in it. Now some of you... um, are looking at me a little funny, I think. Because you're well-read. And you have uh, read on world religions. And um, you go, no, wait a minute, I I want to dispute that. Um, This is very similar to many other religious systems. And so you might want to quote the Talmud to me. Um, The saying of one Rabbi Hillel who said, whatever is not helpful, don't do that to other people. Or you might want to quote the philosopher Confucius who said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Or still, some of you say, well, I know Greek philosophy, and among the Stoic philosophers, they said something similar. They said, whatever you want people not to do to you, don't do that to anyone else. 
But do you see the difference? All of those are negative. All of those are about self-preservation. Dude, you don't want to get hurt? Don't be mean to anybody. That's a far cry from do to others what you want them to do to you. That's the positive. It's one thing to live in the negatives. It's another thing to take the negative and turn it into a positive. Back in the uh, 1600s, the 17th century, somebody invented a great instrument in Europe called the harpsichord. Now, the harpsichord has a keyboard like a piano, and uh, you play chords and you play notes on it. You, You push down the keys, and what happens is there's a little arm underneath that has a pick, a plectrum, like a guitar that plucks a string and the string vibrates and you have a note. And that was a chief instrument in Europe for a century and a half, almost two. The problem with the harpsichord is that uh, it was slow and it was very limiting. It wasn't as responsive. So Around the end of the 18th century, somebody had a brilliant idea of taking a keyboard and attaching it to an armature that had a hammer that would strike the string rather than pluck the string, and the piano was invented. Changed music completely, from a harpsichord to a piano. That's what Jesus does. Yes, there's been these principles in many other religious systems around the world. But Jesus comes along and invents the piano. It's not this limiting, slow, negative thing. It's something very positive and very unique to the teachings of Christ and Christianity. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Simple application. You've been a recipient of God's goodness. Now bless other people. Bless other people. Think, what would bless that person? If I were to say this or encourage that person in this manner or, or drop that little favor by, what would that do to them? Because I sure love it if people would do it to me. Now, don't go around and say, well, nobody does it to me. That, that's sort of, now you're living in Confucius land <laughs> and Stoicville and Hallel. Do it to them. Be a distributor of it. Verse 13, enter in by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, here's something you discover all throughout Scripture. God makes it easy for us. He he boils things down to the irreducible minimum. Here's two choices. There's two gates. There's two roads. There's two destinations. Take your pick. Which do you want to go down? Which gate do you want to enter into? Because whatever gate you enter into will bring you out into a road that will lead to a destination. And there are only two that you can choose from. Life and death. Heaven and hell. Restoration or destruction. Now Jesus says narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. First of all, notice again we have a command, and in Greek it is a commandment. Enter in the gate. Here's Jesus saying, see that gate? That's me, that's the narrow way. Go there. It's a commandment. He didn't say, ponder the gate, admire the gate. He says, enter the gate. Jesus never said, ponder me, admire me. He said, follow me. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are you following Jesus personally? Or he said, yeah, you know, I studied that class in college on comparative religion, and and I've always admired Jesus. I, I respect Jesus. There are many who respect Jesus who have never received Jesus. Enter into that gate. Now, here's a question. It says there are few who find the right path. Few. Not many, not most. Very few. Why is that? If I'm reading this correctly, just taking Jesus word for word, he's saying that most people aren't saved. Most people won't make it to heaven. That very few people enter into life. Very few people make the right choice. Why is that? 
Few people enter in because it's so narrow. Christianity is so narrow-minded. Have you ever heard that? You are such a narrow person. When people tell me that, I go, thank you. (laughs) By the way, you probably have no idea how narrow I really am. Because the way to life, the narrow way, is the way of being poor in spirit. The way to heaven is the way of mourning over your sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's not that few enter in because God only wants a few. Or He only wants a certain kind. He wants everyone. But few by their own choice will enter in because the way is narrow. It's too restrictive. You know, I kind of want my own deal. I kind of want my own agenda. They want the wide way. They want the less restrictive way. They want the easy way. Beware of false prophets, verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Why does Jesus immediately after saying, enter into the narrow gate, say, beware of false prophets? Pretty easy to figure that out, right? Because the false prophets are the one who say, don't listen to that. Actually, it doesn't matter which way you choose. All roads lead to God. Choose the wide path. Choose whatever you're into. It's all the same deal. It's all the same God. It's just a smorgasbord, but you're all going to get fed in the same restaurant. You know, throughout the scripture, there is a constant warning against false prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 13 in the Pentateuch is a chapter devoted entirely to the false prophet, the false dreamer, the miracle worker who doesn't represent God. Isaiah the prophet warned against prophets who speak lies in my name. Jeremiah said, woe to those prophets who prophesy lies in my names. I have not sent them. Jesus said, many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ and deceive many. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many. Matthew chapter 24. There's that constant flow of warning through the Bible because like we've said before, and it was even articulated this last weekend at the conference, when you turn on the light, the bugs come. When you preach the gospel of the narrow way, the true path, the singular path, the false prophet will come along and try to disrupt that. Now, false prophets are disguised, okay? They don't knock on your door and go, Hi, I'm your neighborhood false prophet. (laughs) See my name tag? False prophet. I've come to deceive you. No, they, they come looking like Christians. And you say, are you a Christian? Oh, yes. Do you believe Jesus? Yes. You believe in the Jesus of the New Testament? Yep. You believe he's the Son of God? I do. Now, what you should do then is have them define the word Jesus, define the Son of God, and define salvation, because I'll guarantee you many of them pour into the word, the same word, a different meaning than you pour into it. So a definition of terms is important. And so the clothing works. It's sheep's clothing. When you get to the book of Revelation, there's the beast, chapter 13, the Antichrist. Same chapter, there's somebody called the false prophet. John says, I saw another beast arise out of the sea. That's the false prophet. And he's described by John as somebody who looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. And so we refer to him as the false prophet in the great tribulation period who will work miracles in the name of the Antichrist and get people to worship the Antichrist. All the way through redemptive history is the warning against false prophets. 
Now, Jesus says in these verses, you'll recognize them eventually. Notice, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Fruit is the evidence that a tree produces. If I were to tell you, hey, I have a lemon tree at home. You'd say, excuse me, a lemon tree? Oh, yeah, I have a lemon tree at home. Now, I may have a lemon tree, but not outside in this climate. It'd have to be inside. It's possible. But if you're skeptical, all you have to do is say, prove it. Now, how would I prove it? I'd bring you lemons. Of course, you probably want to see that I picked them from my tree and I got them from the store. But the fruit would be the evidence that I really have a lemon tree because you can see the lemons. When it comes to prophets of God, so-called, the fruit, what they produce in terms of their character, in terms of their doctrine, all of that is the evidence that they are either true or false. So, again, this balances out verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Here Jesus says, listen, beware of false prophets. Well, how can you do that? Unless you are willing to make a critical evaluation of a person's character and doctrine. And say, that's a false prophet. That's not a false prophet. So, next time somebody says... You shouldn't judge people. You just say, you're right. I'm not going to be a judge. I'm only going to be a fruit inspector. <laughs> and that's what you are called. That is what I am called to do. Inspect the fruit. Say, prove it. Let me see the fruit, man. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice the difference between a person who says and a person who does. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. And oftentimes in Scripture, a word is repeated to speak of fervency, passion. This guy's passionate about the Lord. Lord, Lord is the idea. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What they say about the Lord is one thing. They say the right things about the Lord. But they do not submit to the authority of the Lord. They have eternal language, but they don't have eternal life. And eternal language is Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah, bless God, thank you, Jesus. All that is language you've heard in churches. Not everybody who says the right language has the right relationship. Now, there's a couple things notice that that person is missing. First of all, he's missing a lifestyle. Notice Jesus said in verse 23, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You're not practicing righteousness. You're practicing lawlessness. It is a perpetual, habitual lifestyle contrary to Scripture. Nobody's perfect. We all struggle with sin. But a Christian doesn't perpetually live in sin, though occasionally may fall into sin. You understand the difference? Somebody put it to me this way. A Christian is somebody to whom sin clings. An unbeliever is someone who clings to sin. It's not somebody who struggles with it. That's not an unbeliever. They don't care about the struggle. They just do it. They're into it. But they call themselves a believer. They say, Lord, Lord. So they're absent. They're missing the right lifestyle. I read an article a few years back about a doctor who was arrested for malpractice, for practicing lawlessness. Get this. He said he was a doctor. He hung up the parchment that said, I'm a doctor. He only finished three years of medical school. He didn't graduate from medical school. See, that fourth year, that's a doozy. You need that fourth year. You got to pass the exam after the fourth year. You got to take the boards and then you get the real parchment. So he was saying he's one thing, but he's practicing something else. And the reason they caught him was, was malpractice. He's making stupid choices, dumb decisions. 
and actually hurting patients. So he lacked a lifestyle. He missed that. Second thing, according to Jesus, this person misses a relationship. Notice, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and they'll say what we've done. I will declare, I never knew you. Now that's relationship. And when God says, I never knew you, it doesn't mean, um, I'm sorry, what's your name? I forgot who you are. I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you. That's not what it means. He knows everyone, knows their name, and knows everything about that person. It means I don't know you intimately, relationally. I don't know you as one of my own disciples who have placed their faith and trust and dependence in me. I don't know you in that capacity. It's an experiential, relational knowledge he's speaking about. All of you here know the president of the United States. Not personally, but you know what he looks like. You know how he talks. You know what he says. and um, You may have even met him, but to say I know someone is different than I know who he is or what he looks like or what they do. And that's the idea here. I never knew you. You lacked the relationship. So how can you know God is the big question. Think about that tonight. How can you tonight... Walk away and say, I know God. Well, you've got to be born into his family. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? Have you simply trusted in the Savior? Have you made a decision to turn from your sin and turn to Christ as your Savior personally? Have you done that? Does that mark your life? You see, Jesus said, as many as received him to them, he gave the power, the authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That's how we come to know him. Verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The first thing you should do is look at the house. Now, if you look at two houses side by side, you couldn't tell the difference. They look great. They look the same. And so right now in this room, if you were to look around at the people sitting around you, you don't know who really follows Christ and who really does not. You can't tell. We're people. We we look the same. We're all sitting in the same church. So look at the house, but then Jesus says, next look under the house. What is the house built on? What is the foundation? Is it sand or is it bedrock? Get this. In Jerusalem, I could show you homes they've uncovered still standing on their solid bedrock foundations with archways and everything after two, three thousand years. You know, we talk about a vintage home. It's a hundred years old. Wow. That's just like yesterday. (laughs) Look at the house. Look under the house. What is your life built on? Are you submitted to the master architect, to the master builder? Look at, look under, and then look ahead. Look at the storms. The rains descended. The floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. There's a hurricane coming, Jesus said. There are storms of life that sift out the true from the false. And the biggest storm is the one of judgment. And great will be the fall of that house. And then we close off the chapter. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let's bow our heads. And I'm having you do it for a reason.
Think of all these principles that we have just heard. And think how the people marveled at Jesus because He spoke with such authority. His word was authoritative. And the last words were, whoever listens to these words and does them, that's a wise person. Whoever listens to my words and doesn't do them, that's a fool. It's a foolish person. And so in closing our eyes, we're just shutting everyone around us out. We're not talking to anyone. We're not thinking about tomorrow morning or what happened today. Or We're just thinking about our relationship with God. Are we under His authority? Have we entered into the narrow gate, the one that leads to eternal life? Or are we still cruising on the broad way, the wide way? the way that is less restrictive, the way that we think is good for our lives, not God's way for our life. Just know that there is Jesus telling you, get in that gate, enter into that gate. Maybe tonight you're just tired of chasing so many pots of gold at the end of rainbows that haven't produced. You've looked for satisfaction in in relationships and status and education and jobs. The well is empty. You're thirsty tonight. God isn't telling you get religious. He's saying get real. Get right with me. Get real. And that's by receiving Christ. Some of you remember making some choice years ago, but you're not walking with Jesus tonight. How many of you here tonight, right now, would say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior, whether for the first time or maybe a recommitment, but you want to get your life back right with God? I want you, as our heads are bowed, you raise your hand up. I want to acknowledge your hand and pray for you as we close. God bless you, ma'am, and you in the middle, and you, sir, in the middle toward the back. Raise it up so I can see it. I see your hand. God bless you. And on my left, anyone else? Raise that hand up. A few of you right there to my right and toward the back. Anyone else? Is God speaking to you? Then just say yes to him. Don't hold back any longer. Here's God saying, I've got stuff for you. I have gifts for you. I have blessing for you. Leave the old life. Anybody else? Father, I pray for those many who are raising their hands right now. Those who are listening by radio or by internet, the same thing. And we pray, Father, that lives would be changed in our very midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? As Waverly sings this last song, a very famous altar call song, if you raise your hand, get up from where you're standing right now, whether you're right up in the front, in the middle of an aisle, in the very back, and find the nearest aisle, and you come, and you stand right up here, and I'm going to pray a prayer to receive Christ tonight, right here, right now. Come right on up as we sing. several hands go up. This isn't the time to just wait and watch. It's the time to come and receive. Jesus called people so often publicly, and He's calling you tonight to make a stand for Him. Come all the way up to the front. Come all the way up. Right on up.
I'm going to wait just another moment as they sing another verse, partly because I love this song, also partly because I remember I was one of the last holdouts when it came to receiving Christ. I waited to the very, very end, and I pushed people away, and I pushed God away, and I think God is still working on some hearts, and He's drawing more people. Just as I am in waiting up to read my soul, I wonder God to Thee, whose blood can cleanse each part of Oh God, I come. tuning in by radio or you're watching on live stream on the internet, I'm going to lead those who have come forward here in a word of prayer. Right where you're at, you can pray and you can do the same thing and make the same choice. You can also call the radio station. You can log on. We have a cyber pastor in cyberspace who's, if you're watching by internet, can talk to you and lead you also in prayer. Hey, those of you who have come forward, and there's a lot of you tonight, we're so grateful to God for that. Okay, now it's crunch time, right? This is it. This is transaction time. This is where you give your life away. You're giving your life to an alien will. You're saying, my life isn't my own anymore. You, you, you made me anyway. I'm giving my life back to you, God, to live for you and your glory. The Bible calls that repentance. You're turning from sin. You're turning to Christ. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud after me from your heart to the Lord let's pray Lord I give you my life I know that I'm a sinner please forgive me I believe that Jesus died that he shed his blood for me that he rose again from the grave and I turn from my sin I leave my past I turn to you as my savior I want to live for you as Lord. Help me in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.